The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I will say that um, Jack Smith was in the courtroom. Um, he was not at the table with uh, the with the other GO- DOJ attorneys, but he was sitting um, at the in the you know first row right behind them. And so it, he was, you know, he was present. Um, and you know, it seemed that he was as as he would be, you know, being very attentive. He often was kind of looking over before the proceedings started at Trump and at um, Trump's, you know, table of, of um, counsel. So it was really interesting to kind of see Jack Smith in the same room as Trump for the first time. I'm Benjamin Wittes, and this is the Lawfare Podcast. June 14th, 2023. It's an emergency edition of the podcast, and you know why. Because Donald Trump has been arraigned in Miami, Florida, in connection with the Mar-a-Lago indictment. The arraignment happened yesterday, and our own Anna Bauer was in the courtroom immediately after the hearing. She joined me and Quinta Jurassic in the virtual Jungle Studio before a live YouTube audience to debrief on the whole thing. We talked about what happened in the courtroom. We talked about Trump's conditions of release. We talked about counsel. And we talked about what happened in the line getting into the courtroom 27 hours of waiting before the hearing actually started. It's the Lawfare Podcast, June 14th, Debriefing with Anna Bauer. Anna Bauer, first of all, how was your your Miami all-nighter? It was good. Um, I did at one point um, have to get a line setter so that I could go home because as many people maybe are aware who have been following this closely, the court at a very late hour last night decided that reporters would not be able to bring electronics into the courtroom. So I had to figure out a way to being, being the only, you know, lawfare reporter who was there, whereas most media has like a kind of caravan, um, or, you know, PAs that they can leave a phone with. Um, I had to figure out a way to like get my phone and electronics and laptop back, um, somewhere that I could leave it for a while. Um, so I did leave, um, you know, for a little while to go and do that and, and to take a shower because it was like kind of to a point where I was, 
like just really needed to freshen up. Um, so, um, I, it wasn't that it wasn't, you know, really that I was out there all night, but, um, for a lot of the night, um, and, and as some listeners may be aware, um, you know, we were the first outlet in line. Um, and we'll talk about that a little bit later, but, um, Ben, I know that you probably want to get to the substance of, of what happened in court I feel today. like we have to do the substance first, though. I think the, the line part is what most Americans are most excited about, but being lawfare, we're going to be disciplined here. We're going to start with the line. Uh, we're going to start with the substance. Quinta. We're not um, going to start with the line. <laughs> we are not going to start with the line, though we were at the front of the line. I, I, I do think Anna, you know, this is the first time lawfare has ever been at the front of the line <laughs> in, in, in a literal sense. Um, so Quinta, uh, uh, for everybody in the audience, I just want you to understand this is the least scripted podcast we have ever done. Because I literally don't know the answers to any of the questions I'm going to be asking. We are literally, this is our editorial debrief. So Quinta, jump in at any time, you know, feel free. All right, let's start with the arraignment. Walk us through what happened in court today at the official level, assuming we know nothing. Right. So at the official level, Trump and Waltine Nauta, which I believe, Quinta, correct me if I'm, does that sound right? Nauta? Is that what we decided? Okay. I'm, I'm not, I believe the first name is Waltine. I'm not sure, but the last name is pronounced Nauta. Okay. Um, so Trump and Waltine Nauta were arraigned, made their initial appearance and were arraigned. That's usually a very kind of brief, um, procedural kind of, um, proceeding, um, in which the defendant makes a plea, whether, you know, guilty or not guilty. And, and then there's a, you know, some discussion about whether or not there will be a, restrictions in terms of uh, the the defendant's release. Um, so that's kind of the context of, of what usually happens. It's usually very brief. It's a little bit uneventful often. Um, so Trump and Nalta made their appearances um, with their counsel. Trump, it was uh, Todd Blanche from New York um, and Chris Keis, who is an attorney who is barred in Florida, as well as some other jurisdictions, I believe. Um, and he has represented Trump in not only some of the special master litigation before Judge Cannon uh, that happened in last year, um, but has also kind of, um, you know, represented Trump in, in, a, in some cases in New York. So that's who it was for making, for Trump. Um, for Walty Nauta, it was Stanley Woodward. As some listeners may recall, uh, Woodward recently made some headlines because of a complaint that he had about uh, a potential conflict um, in which the Department of Justice um, uh, prosecutor Jay Bratt um, made a comment about Woodward putting in an application for, um, I believe it was a magistrate judge position in D.C. And and so there's been, you know, some kind of uh, news about Woodward and and he continued on with Nauta and, and made an appearance. However, I will go ahead and say that Nauta, one of the kind of uh, big bottom line headlines that came out of this is that Nauta did make his initial appearance, but will not be arraigned and enter a plea um, until for another two weeks. Um, so, so and that, why is that? 
Right. So the reason why is because Woodward uh, needs a local council who's basically able to, you know, file uh, and vouch for him um, under the local rules. Um, so he's not able to make a permanent, like, an appearance in which he is permanent counsel until he's able to do that. Um, and so for that reason, they continued the arraignment, although Nalta did make his initial appearance and they set some of the conditions, which we'll talk about. So maybe it makes sense for us to go back to what happened with Trump. I, I'm not sure. Yeah, let's, well, let's start at the beginning. Yeah. All rise, gavel, gavel, gavel. Yes. Ju- magistrate judge comes in. It is not Judge Eileen Cannon. Who comes in? It's Judge Goodman. Um, he's a magistrate judge. The duty judge in Miami is, is usually, uh, this month, it's supposed to be Judge Torres. I, I'm not entirely sure why Judge Torres, um, and perhaps in the past 24 hours, there's been, there's been some more reporting that I'm not aware of, but I'm, I'm not sure why Judge Torres, um, was not presiding over this proceeding today. Perhaps it's because there's some other, you know, proceedings that were going on. I know that, Busy with more important stuff. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Exactly. But it's Judge Goodman. Um, so it's all rise, you know, announces United, this is the United States of America case, whatever, versus Trump and Waltine Nalta. I will say inside the courtroom, not only is it all of the representatives um, and counsel that I mentioned on the Trump side, but on the other side of the room, we have some of the DOJ prosecutors. One is David Harbach, who um, it seemed to be was kind of the first seat or maybe the main prosecutor in that proceeding. Um, this is a um, DOJ prosecutor who uh, some reporters spotted it during the grand jury proceedings. Um, so there was some kind of, uh, inkling there that perhaps Harbach had taken, uh, more of a role in this case. Um, and then beyond Harbach, it was, uh, Jay Bratt, who, uh, as I mentioned, um, has had a, you know, long history with this case, did, um, made a lot of appearances in the special master litigation. But does not work for the special counsel. He's a national security division lawyer. Right. And, and, and as well as Jay Bratt, it was Julie Edelstein, who was another person who's in the national security right. division who, uh, was involved in some of the special master litigation. And so one of the things that the judge clarified when all of these, um, DOJ prosecutors made their appearances is, um, you know, are you all from the, you know, DC? Um, so that was kind of interesting that they had three, you know, DC, uh, DOJ prosecutors who were making their, you know, appearances in this case in the Southern District of Florida. So the judge made a point of saying, well, welcome to the Southern District of Florida. And just to be clear, are they now detailed to the Office of Special Counsel, or are they there representing the National Security Division? It's it's not clear. Um, I I am not sure. Um, I don't think that that was made clear. Perhaps there's some more clues if we look at the transcript. But I, from my memory right now, um, I don't recall. I will say that um, Jack Smith was in the courtroom. Um, he was not at the table with uh, the with the other DOJ attorneys, but he was sitting um, at the in the you know first row right behind them, and so it, he was you know, he was present. um, And, you know, it seemed that he was 
as, as he would be, you know, being very attentive. He often was kind of looking over before the proceedings started at Trump and at, um, Trump's, you know, table of, of, um, counsel. So it was really interesting to kind of see Jack Smith in the same room as Trump for the first time. And was he wearing wizard robes? That was exactly what I was about to ask. He was not wearing wizard robes, but it, something that I thought was really interesting is that at the table with Trump, every one of Trump's attorneys was wearing gray or black. Um, and then every single DOJ attorney was wearing gray or black. But both Trump and Jack Smith were wearing a very, like this exact same shade of navy blue. And it kind of stood out. And it was just a little bit like, I mean, maybe I was just, I'm maybe making too much of this, but it was a little bit like, um. Do, do you think they coordinated or? No, I don't think they coordinated, obviously. Because <laughs> that would be a was, scandal. <laughs> it would. Um, but it was, it was really interesting. Um, you know, Trump, just to kind of give people a, an idea of what it looked like, there was this, it's a very like modern courthouse, has some really interesting lighting um, and these like spotlights coming down at certain points in the room. And Trump somehow was seated directly underneath one of the lights. So it was shining kind of right on him and his hair was just kind of, you know, he's this like orange golden hair that was kind of like shining and his suit was like kind of shining and it was almost... It was weird. It was, He's literally it was, in the limelight. Yeah, he was literally in the limelight. Um, so, I, I mean, not that any of that really matters, but just to kind of give listeners an idea of what it looked like being there in, in the courtroom, kind of looking at Trump um, there sitting at the defendant's table. All right. So we introduce counsel. Uh, what happens next? Um, so then we start with Trump. We uh, get to where the judge, we get to the arraignment portion. He asks if Trump will, you know, plead guilty or not guilty. Um, I, to my memory, um, it, the words that Blanche, Todd Blanche uses is, uh, Your Honor, we most certainly uh, plead not guilty. So really kind of stressing that, you know, being very um, adamant about uh, emphasizing that uh, Trump is pleading not guilty. And then we get to the portion of the hearing for Trump um, in which we're going through the conditions of, you know, will he be taken into custody? Will he be released? Um, you know, what, if so, like, what will the conditions be? And when we get to that part, the government um, says that it has made a recommendation basically saying that Trump is going to be released on, or it would like Trump to be released on his own uh, personal recognizance, which means that he would be, you know, released uh, without any kind of like need to pay bail or financial um, commitments. And, and so we get to that part. Um, and then there's some back and forth about what the restrictions will be. So maybe we should move into that. So just to be clear, there's no, discussion of bail or of anything. Prosecution is content for Trump to be released on his personal recognizance. He's not a flight risk. He's right. not a danger to the community, except for the female half of the community. And he's running for president. So it's not going to be difficult to find him. Is that is that the basic logic? 
That's the basic logic. Um, it, the judge mentioned that in the summons that Trump received on uh, June, um, was it the 8th? I believe I, time has no meaning to me right now. It so was I, the 8th <laughs> or something like the 8th. Uh, so it, uh, the, the summons that Trump received on the 8th after he'd been indicted, um, it, the judge mentioned that that summons um, and and uh, submissions that were made to the court prior to the hearing um, by the government was that Trump was not a flight risk, that they um, did not think he was a danger to the community. You know, all of those things that you normally would go go through when evaluating whether or not, you know, to apply bail conditions or, or whatever. Whatever. And so we go through all of that. Um, they, I also will say that, you know, there's usually a number of standard conditions that a defendant must abide by, um, whenever they are, are released. Um, things like, um, you know, you can't commit any new offenses and, um, you know, you have to That's appear. That's going to be a tough one for him. <laughs> I mean, seems- really? <laughs> Maybe. Um, but there's other things like, um, you know, you can't like change your address without prior approval or, or that kind of thing. Um, so basically the government said like the only ones that we care about are the, uh, standard conditions number one and number five. Um, and those conditions mean that, you know, Trump has to appear for, you know, future proceedings and that kind of thing. And then also that Trump can't commit new offenses. So so um, they don't even have a can't leave the country restriction? No, they did not ask for him to, you know, surrender his passport. They, um, the judge also mentioned that usually under the, the um, in Florida, um, the local custom is that if a defendant leaves Florida, they have to, you know, receive permission. But the government didn't insist on any of those conditions. Um, it was only the standard conditions one and five that I just mentioned. Um, and they didn't request any special uh, conditions either. So for a defendant who is charged with 37 felony counts... Um, well, including <laughs> felony counts involving national security matters, this is an exceptionally uh, light touch. For... It's extraordinary, yes. And I, by the way, I'm I'm not surprised by it, but people mm-hmm. should, I mean, the circumstances are genuinely extraordinary, but people should understand how unusual it is in a national, in a national security offense like this. The idea that he's walking around on bail without, without being even bailed with no restrictions on his ability to leave the country or even notify them before he leaves the country. And that there is, I mean, that's an extraordinary thing given the volume of classified information at the level of sensitivity here. Um, okay. So. Presumably, the defense has no objections to this. Defense has no objections. Um, however, the judge does um, think that, you know, perhaps that is um, 
a little bit too uh, lenient. Um, so the the judge accepts that you know only the standard conditions one and five will apply to Trump. He accepts that Trump doesn't have to you know surrender his passport or um, you know receive permission to leave the state and and all of those things. Um, but he says that uh, he does want to apply some special uh, conditions. And there's some back and forth on this. So the first thing that he says is that he wants to uh, restrict Trump's conversations with Nalta to things other than the facts of the case. So he doesn't want Trump and Nalta to discuss the case. And the reason he says that he's not restricting just communications between the two as a kind of blanket restriction is that he recognizes that Nalta it works for Trump and, you know, that that would be a practical impossibility um, by, you know, restricting Nalta and Trump from not communicating at all because Nalta is Trump's body man. And Nalta, I mean, came there in the car with Trump. Right. So presumably he at least, you know, needed to be able to get a lift out of the courthouse or, you know, be stuck hailing an Uber or or something like that. I will say I did wonder when I heard that the judge had set that condition about whether or not Trump is going to be able to maintain it, because we all know that he has problems with impulse control. Let's say Nauta is someone whose job is to be by his side regularly and get him Diet Cokes, apparently, is a big part of his job and and that kind of thing. You know, like, will he be able to resist the temptation? This feels like it's a something that could potentially end poorly. Oh, very much so. And Ben, maybe you can tell us, like, what, what the outcome would be if it's, um, if it is clear that Trump is not abiding by that condition. Yeah, so, I, I mean, first of all, I suppose theoretically it could revoke his condition. You know, these are conditions of release, and so theoretically, if you violate them, the judge can uh, revoke your release on personal recognizance. Theoretically, you can be locked up. As a practical matter, I think uh, Quinta is certainly right that nobody's going into this with a assumption that they are going to be able to prevent. Uh, uh, Trump and Nata from discussing the case. Of course, the nature of those discussions, the reason you want to avoid those discussions from the government and judges' side is you want to avoid further acts of, of obstruction, which of course are already charged here in their relationship. And you also want to avoid uh, efforts by Trump to prevent Nata from cooperating, right? And so I think the fact that they are very close, they are clearly talking, uh, the judge is saying here, don't talk about the case, knowing it's a fruitless gesture, but um, I suppose there could be accountability if it is violated in any one of several ways, including, you know, adding additional charges if he were to you know, if he were to say to Nata something that constituted an additional obstruction, that's all, of course, hypothetical. But that's what the judge is thinking about when he when he puts a restriction on that. Right. And I and and so I will also say that, you know, beyond that restriction with Nauta, 
The judge also mentioned that um, he would like to apply another more broad restriction in terms of communications with witnesses. He initially suggested that the Department of Justice should come up with a list of fact witnesses um, that, uh, you know, then would be, you know, submitted to the court and, and that those witnesses would, uh, that Trump would be, you know, restricted to not discussing or, or communicating with those witnesses or victims. To my memory, it was that the communication would be kind of, you know, full stop, no communication with those witnesses or, or victims. But there was subsequently, you know, a lot of back and forth because Todd Blanche, uh, you know, objected to, to that idea. Um, he raised the, uh, fact that a lot of the witnesses are people who are in Trump's protective detail. Um, they are still employed by Trump. So a lot of the same kind of considerations and practical problems that arose with Nauta's, you know, communications with Trump, um, would also apply to those fact witnesses as well. Um, so there was, there was a lot of discussion about that within the, uh, uh, within the arraignment and the initial appearance. Um, they ultimately decided that the Department of Justice would come up with this list of witnesses. It's not necessarily an exhaustive list. Um, but it would be a list of witnesses that Trump is restricted to not discussing the case, um, with those witnesses. Um, so, you know, it's similar to the restriction that applies to Nauta also applies to these other witnesses as well. And we don't know how many there are. I mean, it could be like half the staff of Mar-a-Lago. It could very well be half the staff of Mar-a-Lago, um, we, we don't know. And, and, um, you know, I, Ben, is it, do you think we will see that list or is it possible that that could be, you know, something that doesn't go on the public docket or, or is placed under a seal? I don't know. Okay. I think it depends how concerned they, the government is about the safety of some of those witnesses. Trump and his coterie are going to know who they are, but you know, putting their names on the public docket could subject them to all kinds of intimidation by people who are sympathetic to Trump, but not directly involved. And so I, I think it would probably depend on a, a, a sense of the threat, if any, of witness intimidation. Okay. So, all right, we go through the Trump conditions it sounds like the judge is more concerned here than the government is. Yeah, and I think that the government, you know, once the judge raised these conditions, the government was more than happy to go along with it. And, uh, you know, they um, tried to, you know, they said, you know, judge, we want to respect your concerns here. And, and you know, they, they tried to... We're so um, glad you raised this. <laughs> Yeah, it seemed like that, that's kind of what the sub, subtext was, yes. Um, and, and so they, um, you know, were very kind of happy to go along with the judge there. Um, although they did also try to, you know, make some suggestions for how they could, you know, work it out to make it, you know, uh, more, 
favorable to Trump by, you know, saying like, we can, you know, conference about this list and, you know, whatever. But ultimately what happened is, as I said, um, the judge decided, you know, uh, we're just going to make it so that, you know, the government's going to come up with this list. And that's the list of people that uh, Trump cannot discuss the facts of the case with. But can interact with normally otherwise. Mm -hmm. Yes, can interact with normally otherwise. Uh, I, I will say, Discuss the facts of the case except through counsel. So Todd Blanche had pointed out that, um, or, or made representations to the effect that, um, any of the witnesses who might be on that list that they are aware of have counsel and, and have, you know, adequate counsel. And, and so, you know, there was a little bit kind of, back and forth about that, about, you know, does everyone have counsel, you know, whatever. But, but because of, for that reason, you know, the judge said, okay, well, they they can communicate through their counsel if it's about the case, but, um, you know, otherwise no, no communications about uh, what's going on with the case. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit to get 30, bit to get 20, 20, 20, bit to get 20, 20, bit to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. All right, so what happens next? We, uh, we, we've had a not guilty plea entered, uh, certainly, and we've had, I've never heard the certainly not guilty uh, plea before, by the way. We, we've had a discussion of contact between co-defendants and with other witnesses. What next? Right. So then um, Trump and uh, Todd Blanche and Chris Keist review the uh, the conditions of release form that every you know defendant like it, it's kind of this form. Um, you look over all the standard conditions, all the special conditions, and it's basically just like a few minutes of silence. And you can you can hear the lawyers murmuring in Trump's ear. You can hear the rustling of papers. And it very I will say something that's interesting that I. I noted is that it very much seemed like Todd Blanche was the one who was kind of always in Trump's ear. Trump was always leaning over to Todd Blanche as opposed to um, Chris Keiss. That dynamic is interesting because although Chris Keiss here is making an appearance on on behalf of Trump, you know, there's been some rumblings that he's had a bit of a falling out with with Trump. Um, so uh, take that for, you know, what you will. And and can I also can I also ask, I'd read that Keiss was maybe there in court today because uh, in sort of wearing a local council hat, um, because mm-hmm. there's been a lot of reporting about Trump's failure to find other local counsel because he's widely known as a just a nightmare of a client. I wonder if that might also be playing into it. Like Keist doesn't actually maybe really want to be there. 
I do think that that probably is, does have something to do with it. I, I am not sure if Todd, Ben and Quinta, maybe you know this. I haven't been able to look at Pacer because I'm on my phone. So it was, I, I didn't get to see where they made their appearances and all that. But I don't think that Blanche is barred in, in Florida. Is that, is that right? And so I think that maybe Chris Keist. It looks like he's, yeah, he practices in New York. So he could yeah. be barred in Florida, but he probably not or maybe not. Or, yeah. So I, th- I think maybe Chris Keist was playing the kind of local council, uh, role there that you need to, you know, be able to uh, make a, a, an appearance. And- yeah. Mm hmm. Um, but I'm not sure I would need to like look at the, uh, look at Pacer and, and look at some of the, you know, entries to, to check that. So I, no one take that as, as, as true or not until, um, until I do so. Um, right. And so then we move on to Walt Nauda. As I discussed previously, um, there were some issues with, um, the fact that Stanley Woodward did not have, you know, local counsel to play that kind of role that maybe Chris Keis did for, uh, Todd Blanche. And so for that reason, um, they could not arraign Nalta. The judge did say that they would continue it for two weeks to, I think it's June 27th at 9.45 a.m. Um, but the judge noted that Nalta is, um, you know, lives out of state. Um, and so he, uh, cited a, you know, rule that allows, uh, the defendant to basically like sign a form with their plea. Um, Stanley Woodward would have to appear alongside, you know, the local counsel at that hearing in person, but it would allow Nalta to, you know, not be there personally. Um, so, so to be determined if that is what they will do, but, you know, the judge said, okay, we'll continue the arraignment, but we're still going to, you know, t- talk about uh, the conditions of release. Um, so they proceeded to that part. This all kind of went very fast at this point because it basically just the judge wanted to apply the same conditions of release that were applied to Trump. So as with Trump, um, with, you know, the, the government coming up with a list of witnesses that Nalta cannot speak to, um, except through counsel about the case, that condition will also apply to, to him as well. And then we were done. So how long was the whole thing? From the, t- from gavel to gavel, you might say. How, how long did it go? So I was really focused on the end of the hearing at looking at Trump and Jack Smith and like what was going on there. So I didn't look at the clock. I do know that when we start, we started at 2.55, I believe we uh, got to Nauta at like 3.30. So, and then it was probably like 10, like 15 minutes after that. So, so it's a short, yeah, it's a short hearing as, as befits an arraignment. Short and sweet. And it's different from the Manhattan hearing because if you'll recall the, uh, Manhattan arraignment, there was kind of this like weird opening statement from, uh, the prosecutors, which you usually don't see in an arraignment. It was, right. it was very, it was a little bit odd. And then of course, you know, Trump's team wanted to respond. There was a lot of the, in that hearing, a lot of the kind of, you know, talk about, the it being a political prosecution and all of that, but here it was really 
just a lot more um, kind of somber in tone. I think that this is the most restrained that I personally have seen Trump attorneys in in court. Um, they they didn't use the same kind of um, like bravado and and that kind of thing that they usually have or have had um, in the special master litigation, for example. Um, so it was a really different kind of tone. And, uh, yeah, that, that's, that's, that's it, I think. All right. It's not it from us, though. Quinta, you have, uh, you have thoughts, questions? Yeah. I mean, just to kind of drive the point home, it sounds like Trump was silent the whole time, right? He didn't say a word to my memory. I mean, he, there were times when, you know, he whispered in Todd Blanche's ear or he nodded, you know, when he was leaving, he kind of looked back at the room. He looked very, like, to be honest, like very tired, um, almost a little bit resigned. But, um, yeah, other than that, I, it was, he did not make a sound and he was already seated when we, when we got into the room, um, because of the security situation. Um, but we did get to see him walk out. And we saw Jack Smith walk out as well. It's just an interesting dynamic to see those two in the same room for the first time. And did uh, the hearing end with any kind of subsequent uh, scheduling? Or does that, I don't know what the local rules are in Florida, does that just await uh, uh, whatever motions get filed? I'm assuming that there probably are like local rules for scheduling. There was some mention of like a discovery order being and Brady order being entered. I am not sure what, uh, the, you know, typical deadlines in, in, uh, the Southern District of Florida for those are. So I'd have to, you know, wait and see. There wasn't any kind of, you know, announcement of, okay, here's the next deadline. And there was no discussion of, so one of the immediate issues they're going to have to deal with is there's going to be a large, crazy amount of classified discovery, and Trump is going to need counsel cleared to handle that discovery before they can do any of it. Um uh, there was no discussion of the mechanics of of any coming SEPA issues? There wasn't. I think the reason why is because the judge made a point of saying, I'm just a temporary stand-in and Judge Cannon um, will deal with future proceedings. At one point, the judge mentioned that the Pro Hoc Vice, you know, filing the the appearance of counsel uh, situation application had been granted by Judge Cannon, not by Judge Goodman. Um, so it does seem like Judge Cannon is active and and has the case based on that. Um, I am personally doubtful that that DOJ will seek Judge Cannon's recusal or disqualification. I, I ben too. and Quinta, I'd be curious to hear your thoughts. But Do you have thoughts on whether they'll move to recuse Judge Cannon? I don't know. I mean, my guess is probably no, right? But I could be wrong. It feels like it's a pretty high-risk move with a low odds of actually panning out. And because of that you know, you have a much higher chance of being stuck with a judge who you now have pissed off. 
clearly they're not coming out swinging. Um, you know, they're, they're not asking for Trump to be strapped with an ankle monitor or anything like that. My understanding, um, and I guess I don't know if this is consistent with practice in the, the Southern District of Florida and the 11th Circuit, but um, Ken White, aka Popat, uh, wrote up a blog post earlier today uh, arguing that if Canon has some kind of truly egregious ruling, um, there is a mechanism by which uh, the government could essentially take that to the 11th Circuit and say, not only, you know, as an interlocutory appeal of the ruling in particular, but ask for the case to be removed from her and reassigned. Um, White's view was that that would be more likely to succeed. Um, assuming that DOJ agree- or the special counsel agrees with him, I don't see why then you wouldn't just say, we're not going to ask her to accuse. That's just going to backfire. Wait, play nice, see what she does. If she does something that egregious, then we will take this step. I think that's exactly right. I didn't know Popat had said that. Um, I That's very similar to what I have been sort of toying around with. It seems to me that, first of all, she is a federal judge and the government has to play in front of her every day, uh, you know, and so the government has an interest in a relationship with every federal district judge. And secondly, she issued some bad rulings in this, but she wasn't engaged in misconduct. She was engaged in bad judging. So I I think the likelihood that you, if you have to go up on an interlocutory appeal or, you know, God forbid, on a mandamus order, then you say, and disqualification and, and reassignment to a different judge, and you just kind of append that to the 11th Circuit motion. But I I don't think you're going to see a motion for recusal here. Okay, let's move on to the fun stuff. Anna, uh, first of all, I want your confession about how you started this line yesterday. Oh, and my God. how it's all your fault that a crowd of journalists had to sleep outside. Okay, here's what happened because I need to clear my name because I think every corporate media person is thinks that I'm just like really hardcore and crazy and that I'm the reason why the line was started, which I was, but um, it was an accident. Uh, <laughs> so um, what happened is that I was on Twitter. Um, I was in Miami that morning on Monday morning. Um, and I was on Twitter, uh, kind of trying to see what was going on around the courthouse. And I saw a journalist, I think it was, um, Eric Lack from the, uh, the New Yorker, um, who tweeted something like, Oh, media is already staking out at, uh, the Miami federal courthouse. And I was like, Oh no. So I just like immediately went over there to, to see if there was a line that had formed because I knew from the Manhattan arraignment that a line for media members of the media, which was first come first serve, um, had formed like 24 hours in advance. And this was like 27 hours to go before Trump's, uh, federal arraignment on criminal charges. So I get over there and there's, I can't see a line. So I'm like, all right, I'm good. I'm not going to be the girl who starts the line. Um, so I'm just like walking around, taking some photos and it starts to rain. 
And um, the way that the Mi- Miami federal courthouse is set up is that there's like a little plaza, like there's two buildings, and then in between it's this kind of walkthrough passageway, um, and you can go and kind of sit underneath like a, 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 a shelter, basically, in between the two buildings, um, and the entrance is right there, and it's, you know, sheltered. And I didn't have an umbrella with me, so I just went and sat right next to... <laughs> right next to the door. But of course, this made it look like I was like starting my... The starting the camp out. Starting the camp out. And uh, meanwhile, NBC has these like, you know, of course, these like big corporate media organizations have like a million people working for them. And so there's these two interns whose job, they told me later, is to look to see if anyone's starting a line and like run over as soon as it looks like anyone's starting a line and get a spot. So you're what you're actually guilty of is looking like you were starting a yes. line. And then it's like a self-fulfilling prophecy. Yes. So it's I conspiracy then, to start a line. It, exactly. So, no, so then, there's no agreement. It's not a conspiracy. It's like a it's like it's like the appearance becomes it's it's the medium is the message. It's yeah. Marshall McLuhan starting a line. And so I have no idea that these kids think that we're starting the line. I thought they were getting out of their rain too. So I'm, I'm sitting there with them and then I see an ABC news reporter walk by and she goes, wait, is this the line? And they were like, yeah, yeah, this is the line. And I was like, I was like, oh no. And so then ABC news joins and then like the NBC, like, you know, the, all these people start coming by. And then it snowballed. And then it snowballed. And then I was like, guys, we can just agree that the line didn't start, you know? And they were like, no, it's too late. We're too, we're, we're in too deep. And I was like, well, great. I guess I'm here for the next like 27 hours now. And it's just me. And so other than <laughs> hiring uh, a line sitter, I assume you did that. Is there like a, a, a stand in line app that like Uber I just, for lines? I, I used TaskRabbit and I just like messaged someone and I was like, hey, I'm at the courthouse. Can you like come stand in line for me for a few hours so I can like go shower and like do this like errand or whatever? And did the person pretend that was a normal TaskRabbit request? Oh, I'm sure in Miami they've absolutely gotten weirder tasks. Yeah, they were like, can you explain and like give us some more details? And they were so, (laughs) they were so confused when they saw it. They were like, they were like calling me like, wait, are there like a bunch of media trucks where you like, they were so confused and they were like, why isn't the line moving if it's a line? And it was, it was just very <laughs> funny. Um, so, so did you feel like one of those crazy people before Black Friday who's like camped outside of a Target or something? I did. And it was so funny because the, um, international media outlets, thought that this was like the craziest thing that anyone's ever done. So I got interviewed well, by like kind of is. I <laughs> I got interviewed by ABC Australia, um, a Japanese uh news organization, and I wanna say there's like one more <laughs> and they were like asking these questions like so in such disbelief of like, why are you here? What are you doing? Why are you here this early? What are you doing? And they just did <laughs> It was, I mean, was it was the hilarious. most incredulous. Um, the, the ABC Australia, because, you know, Australians are so chill. Like, they would never show right. up 27 hours ahead of Donald Trump's arraignment. Um, so and yet the, they were there covering the story that was you doing it. So in, in yeah. some ways, the, the joke was on them. 
All right. So then uh, you go back to the hotel, you take a shower, you and then you come back. Yeah. What what happens? When does the line finally move? Well, so here's the thing. Someone made a list of all, all the media. Like, it's like I'm like there for hours and hours and hours. We were there like 27 hours ahead of time. Got first on the like media list of like someone, of course, started making a list of who is where in the line. And the court's website had said, you know, there's going to be 20 spots in person in the courtroom and it's going to be on a first come first serve basis. Um, and Judge Goodman even had an, uh, an order that went out, you know, the night before that said like members of the media will come in on a first come first serve basis. And then the next morning, <laughs> literally after we'd been out there for hours and hours and hours, they changed the rules completely and said, oh, it's going to be random. We're just like randomly going to select a bunch of media to go in. So, in fact, we, like, didn't even have to be out there at all. We could have just gotten in because there weren't – the media room was not filled. Um, it was a huge jury room, like an overflow room, and they had video monitors set up. And we we were um, – the line started to move at 8.30 a.m. They brought us into court. We went through security. And they were like, okay, we're going to tell you later who is getting into the in-person courtroom. And, of course, I – it started the lawfare lobbying campaign with the U.S. Marshal as soon as possible <laughs> because I was like, there is no way I was out there for that long. Yeah, so not that, that, that's the, that, that's really a gross injustice. And so what happened? How did, did you get in because you were in fact first in line and in fact the founder of the line or did you get in? Because you were randomly selected, or did you get in because you you uh, engaged in a fist fight with somebody and um, pummeled them and uh, uh, got the nineteenth seat of the twenty? Well, the random selection thing did not happen because we had to all give our business cards, and then they were supposed to like you know randomly draw a lottery. Didn't happen. They showed up like an hour before the hearing. They were like, "Okay, we're going to call a list of twenty you know, news organizations, uh, and that's who's going to get into the courtroom. So, of course, they go down the list, and it's all the major outlets. And and Lawfare is cruelly excluded from this list. Um, and then they're like, okay, we're going to go to the second round of 20. And they call out the list of 20 more outlets, and Lawfare is not on the list. And so I walk up to the marshal who I uh, – um, who was kind of – it's it was uh, Drew Wade who – it was kind of brought in from DC to like organize the security situation. Um, and then Angela Noble, who is the clerk of court, and they were kind of had been organizing all of this. And <laughs> I just, I was like, Hey, we were first in line. We've been here forever. Like, I just want you to be aware of that. Um, and luckily for us, the list they made, uh, there was a guy from USA Today that they'd like put twice on the list. So uh, Drew Wade, did Lawfare a solid and just marked out USA Today, uh, who was counted twice and like wrote like Anna Bauer Lawfare. Um, and so we got in in that second group. But and there you I mean, have it, guys. USA Today tried to steal our seat. And I was going to thank USA Today. <laughs> and Drew Wade did us a solid by stopping the theft of Lawfare's seat. He gets the official Lawfare Stop the Steal Award of the of, <laughs> of, of the day. 
And I also have to say, there was an ABC, I believe it was, no, NBC uh, journalist who was second in line, who had already gotten, you know, they got their spot in the court. And he like went up to me when all the names were being called out. And he's like, you need to go up there and tell them you are first. Um, so, and he was like, I'm going to fight for you. Like, if you don't do it, I'm going to do it. And so to that guy, thank you. <laughs> yeah. So, all right. What haven't we asked about that, that is itching to, to be talked about? Um, we haven't talked about the security situation and, you know, what, uh, was happening, like, outside of the courtroom. Not that I really got to, we were kind of in this media room that overlooked the plaza where a lot of protests were happening. Um, so we did get to have at least some idea of what was going on out there, but I wasn't really on the ground for long. I will say it was a really, interesting and just wild scene after the hearing because no journalists had their phones. There was no live coverage. And so what happens is that everyone wants to run outside as soon as the hearing is over to go break the news um, with like, you know, live basically, or like write their story or whatever. So People run to the elevator after the hearing and then, you know, they're running outside of the court. So it's like the Washington Post and the New York Times, all these people that are just like running um, out to break the news of, of what happened in the arraignment. And as they're running by, uh, you know, there's a there's a barricade with like a lot of, you know, Trump supporters who as soon as they see media coming out, um, they start chanting four more years, four more years. Um, so it was just this like really surreal experience, uh, kind of seeing this like really wild kind of situation of like media just sprinting out and people shouting four more years and, and a really kind of interesting scene as I was leaving. I didn't get to stick around for long though, because, uh, I, I needed to get back and, and start, you know, doing this, uh, uh, live stream, um, and, and writing. So I can't report too much about what it looked like when the crowds really got going. But I will say the night before when I was, you know, out on the line, there weren't a whole lot of Trump supporters coming by. Um, and for most of the day, uh, the, the crowds were pretty thin, I would say even less than, than it was in Manhattan. All right. We are going to leave it there. Anna has miles to go before she sleeps properly because we still have to get uh, written content up on the site. So we are going to respect her time. This has been a live recording of a Lawfare Emergency podcast. Thank you all for joining us today. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Our audio engineer this episode was me on the audio side and Anna Hickey on the YouTube side. You need to do your part to promote the Lawfare Podcast. And this is a great example of things that Lawfare does that nobody else does quite the same way. So tweet about it. Share us on Facebook. Instagram, all the other socials, just do it. Make TikTok videos about us. 
The Lawfare Podcast is edited by the great Jen Patya Howell. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. And as always, thanks for listening. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms.